I'll never forget a phone call I had with my father, who was in Christian ministry most of his life and passed away in 1999. And he used to take regular retreats. And he uh, he was I called him and and he was on his retreat and he uh, mentioned to me that he was just uh, spending time focusing on the person of Jesus Christ and his grace and a man who had a th a doctorate in theology and had taught the scriptures his entire life got a little teary-eyed with me as he uh, talked about just the grace that we experience in Jesus Christ and it's uh it's a precious memory of mine and aren't we thankful for the grace that we find through faith in Jesus it's our bond it's it's what we have in common because each and every one of us who are here are sinners and as Jesus is pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, all sin is sin. I mean, we all stand just as guilty before him with no righteousness of our own. And uh, what a joy it is to be together with brothers and sisters in Christ uh, with this common bond of we're all recipients of grace through faith. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's really something to be... Uh, it should strike us with awe. Well, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 5. And uh, as we are focusing on Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, what Bible teachers refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus gives this extended sermon on a hillside, we are looking at different portraits that Jesus provides to us of what it looks like to be right with God. In other words, Jesus is giving us little pictures of true righteousness. One of the first things he says in the sermon is, the person who's really righteous realizes that they're not. And so much of what we read here is counterintuitive to us. The, the audience that Jesus addresses here, many of the audience would have been religious leaders. They would have been held in high esteem in their community. And many of these would be viewed as righteous people. But Jesus is teaching that their understanding of righteousness is a misunderstanding. That the religious leaders of the day feel that they are right with God if they merely align their lives with an external code. If they somehow can check off a box, I haven't done this, I haven't done this, I haven't done this. I must be right with God. And Jesus, two weeks ago, we saw in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And by saying that he came to fulfill the law, Jesus is saying that the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, point to him. The Old Testament points to Jesus, and if it points to Jesus, it's pointing to Jesus' teaching. And, and Jesus has the authority to tell us what the law is all about. 
He has the authority to say, this is what the law truly is about. And so, in the section of this last portion of Matthew 5 that we find ourselves here today, we are seeing six different examples. Six examples of how the religious leaders of the the day have misunderstood the Old Testament law. And Jesus demonstrating his authority to say, this is what the law is really about. Last week, we saw in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, Jesus turning to the sixth commandment. From Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not commit murder. And, and Jesus uses a common uh, introduction to each of these six illustrations. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And in the Greek language with which the New Testament is written in, uh, Jesus uses a particular uh, uh, grammatical structure to really make that I stand out. He's saying, but I, I'm the Messiah. I am the one that the entire Old Testament points to. I am telling you, this is what the law says. This is what righteousness looks like. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, your life needs to be looking like this. Because that means that you will truly be righteous. And being righteous isn't just not doing certain outward acts of sin. Being righteous involves the heart. And so, last week Jesus pointed to murder, the sixth commandment. Today, as we look at verses 27 through 30, we're going to see Jesus looking at the seventh commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And for those many in the crowd that say, hey, I'm good there, I haven't done that, I must be right with God. And Jesus is going to say, no, you're not. You're just as guilty as the person who has carried out the act if lust is part of your life. I'm going to read the verses out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, starting to read in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus here is going to show that sin isn't just external. Sin takes root in the very depths of our being, in our heart, in our mind. Growing up, one of my favorite states in the United States was the state of Minnesota. 
I love Minnesota. As an Iowa kid, I always looked forward to our trips to Minnesota to fish. And I always said, I want someday, I want to have my own little tiny house on a lake, my own little cabin. Probably will never happen, but we have enjoyed Minnesota immensely. And one of the unique things about Minnesota is swimming Minnesota, swimming in the lakes of Minnesota. It has its own unique challenges. I can remember my wife's first trip to the Boundary Waters. I've been six or seven times. My wife has just been once. Uh, she went, it rained 48 hours straight, and she has not returned. Uh, one of her experiences that she continues to remind me is when she was swimming in the lake with our young boys and a water snake swam across her path. She did not enjoy that. One of my early memories of swimming in the Boundary Waters was my good buddies with whom I went for the first trip who were trying to convince me to just get in the water. It's great. And they're down in the water saying, just jump in. You're going to love it. And I jumped in and I could not breathe for about 15 seconds because it was so cold. They had, uh, and they just laughed their heads off. You know, another interesting phenomenon of swimming the lakes of Minnesota is the leech. Oh, leeches. That worm-like creature that wants to suck the lifeblood out of you. That wants to just grab on and stay grabbed on and suck out your blood. The leech. Walleye fishermen like them, but most of the general population does not have warm feelings about the leech. One of the things that we face today in our culture is a giant leech. It's a leech that wants to suck the life out of you. If you're married, out of your marriage. If you have children, out of the life of your children. It's a leech of lust. And it is ruining lives. Jesus' message here today is a very simple message, but it's one we desperately need in our culture. And it's a simple message to understand. I don't have to say a whole lot about these verses. They're pretty clear. It's more difficult for us to actually realize the seriousness of what Jesus is saying and to take what we're going to call steps of Radical purity to address it. Here, Jesus, in this common formula, you've heard it said, but I say to you, introduces us to his second of six examples of how the religious leaders of the day have misunderstood the Old Testament law. And so he comes to the seventh commandment in verse 27, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her 
in his heart. Now, I would imagine if you and I were, if we were sitting on that side hill and Jesus just said that, probably was pretty quiet. It's very counterintuitive to the day. It was startling for Jesus to say that the person who looks upon a member of the opposite sex with an eye of lust stands just as guilty before God as the person who carries out an act of adultery. That's a strong statement. And Jesus here is saying, I have the authority to make that statement because I'm the one that the entire Old Testament points to. You see, Jesus is trying to show that sin is not just external. Sin goes right to the heart. Sin is a matter of the heart and the mind first. It demonstrates itself often in outward action. But the inward heart reality is just as much sin as the outward act. And we can look at these verses and say... Yeah, it's pretty easy to understand. The New Testament authors go back to this principle of Jesus. For example, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 14, we looked at this just a few months ago. In 2 Peter chapter 2, as Peter talks about the false teachers, talks about them in verse 14 as having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. You see, Peter understood that they could be adulterers without actually carrying out the act through the eye. We understand what Jesus is saying. That's not an issue. The issue, even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who are disciples, who have put our trust in Him, recognizing that He is God who died for us and rose again, the issue is not understanding what Jesus is saying. The issue is understanding that this applies to me. And it applies to you. My wife, Barbara, and I have three sons. They all grew up here in Cedar Rapids. All three boys went to the same public high school in the area called Linmar High School. All three were athletes. One of the oldest ran track. The other two played basketball and other sports. And when you're involved in athletics at Linmar High School, you are involved with more than just the athletic event itself. You are expected to volunteer. It's volunteer by order. (laughs) And uh, so, because my middle son was involved in the basketball program, he was required to volunteer. And one of the things that the high school does is they have tournaments on the weekends for middle schoolers and sometimes even some grade schoolers. And Ethan was required to volunteer at the tournament. You sign up for a time slot. He went for his assigned time slot only to find out that the referees who were paid to come to this event didn't show. Ethan was handed a striped shirt and a whistle, said, go to the auxiliary gym gym and referee that middle school boys game. He hated it. It was one of the worst experiences of his life. 
because, not the actual refereeing, because of the parents. The parents were screaming at him at the top of their lungs as if, if you make a false call on my 8th grade boy, it's going to ruin his college career at the University of North Carolina. And they were screaming at my son. And the more he was screamed at, the less he wanted to be there, and the less he wanted to blow that little metal whistle. As he relayed the account to me, I said, Son, you still got to make the call. You still have to make the call. Regardless of what's happening around. And one of the issues that we face today is that while we can understand what Jesus is saying, is recognizing we've got to make the call in our own lives. We've got to call it what Jesus calls it. You see, it's very easy. It's extremely easy for disciples even, for Christians, to minimize the severity of what Jesus says here. Jesus says this is severe. Remember verse 28? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, in today's culture, it's really easy to to kind of buy into this attitude of, well, uh, no harm, no foul. I mean, if what what does my thought life how does that affect anybody that's just between me and god or it's really easy for men especially to deflect this truth by saying well that's just how guys are wired that guys are just wired that way you know it, uh, that's just part of who i am it's not part of what jesus says his disciples should be The New Testament authors lift up marriage because God designed marriage and God designed physical intimacy within marriage. It's His plan, but it needs to be carried out according to how He designed it. For example, the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 4, writes writes this, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The author of First Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, in chapter 4, verse 3, starts writing this way, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, the New Testament authors hold up marriage and they hold up physical intimacy within marriage. And here, Jesus is saying to those who are hearing him, who think they are right with God, that they are righteous, that they have entrance into the kingdom because of how good they are. And Jesus is saying, you don't look for good on the outside, you look for good in the heart. 
You don't look for good in your outward act or the lack thereof. You look for good in the mind and the heart. And Jesus, as we come, as we continue to work our way through this, we see that each and every one of us stand guilty. There's none of us who are righteous enough. That's why each of us needs a new heart. And Jesus is making this point. And he wants to show that being right with God isn't just an external checklist. If we want to demonstrate that we're right with God, being right with God is from the inside out. And if we want to show that we are Jesus' disciple, we show that from the inside out. And so Jesus here in verses 29 through 30 isn't calling his hearers to just hear what he has to say. He's calling them to deal with what he has to say. He's basically saying, make the call. Call it for what it is. And as we're going to see, what he's really doing is calling his disciples to radical purity. And we're going to unpack that. What is radical purity? Notice what Jesus says in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it out from you. For it's better for you to use to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That's radical. Now, Jesus here is not calling for self-mutilation. There have actually been some throughout church history who have interpreted these verses that way. But think about it. If you pluck out your right eye, you still have another one that would could be a vehicle for lust. If you cut off your right hand, you still have another one. And quite frankly, you can still sin without having either hand and you can still lust without having your eyes. You see, Jesus isn't calling for self-mutilation. He's calling for radical purity. He's saying, do what you need to do to demonstrate righteousness. Do what you need to do to be righteous in purity. You see, kingdom people recognize that sin is on the inside just as much as the outside. Kingdom people recognize their need for a clean heart and not just outwardly appearing to be right with God. Jesus in both verse 29 and 30 says, it's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What Jesus is saying is this. Righteousness is not just external. It has to be righteousness on the inside. And we all stand guilty. We all deserve hell. We talked about that last week, that place of eternal torment. That's what we deserve 
And Jesus, in saying this, is saying, if we want to demonstrate that we're kingdom people, we need to be demonstrating that we are kingdom people from the inside out. We need to take this seriously. We need to pursue radical purity. In 2015, those of us who live here in Iowa are familiar with an initiative that was launched by our governor, Governor Terry Branstad. It was an initiative to connect every Iowan with broadband internet. There's actually a national coalition called Connected Nation that has been pushing this agenda. And the president of Connect the Nation wrote this about the governor of Iowa. The governor and his administration are aggressively working to ensure that every acre of Iowa is connected and capable of delivering the broadband service Iowa's households and businesses need to innovate, create jobs, and improve education and health care. And that same capability brings high-speed internet pornography to every home in Iowa. Now, they didn't say that part. You know, I don't consider myself to be an old person. And when I was younger, it doesn't feel like it's been that long ago. But when I was younger, if you wanted to look at illicit material, you kind of had to go to it. Now, illicit material comes to us. In fact, most of us carry in our pocket or in a purse the vehicle to receive illicit material. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Jesus' message here is as much needed for us today as it was over 2,000 years ago when Jesus said it. He is calling his followers, disciples, to radical purity. Now what does, what's radical purity? Radical purity means that you may look like the odd man out. That radical purity most likely is going to make you look from every, look different from everybody around you. Radical purity is going to make you uncomfortable. I go hunting a couple times a year for a few days with a group of guys. We stay in an old machine shed. One year when we went, I stepped inside the door of this old machine shed that's loosely been retrofit to be apartment, but it has lots of mice and other things that most people would not appreciate, but it's cheap. I stepped in the door and immediately saw that a previous group had left a lot of inappropriate printed material inside the house. I came out and I said to one of the guys in our group, I said, would you do me a favor? Would you just go inside and gather up all that stuff and either throw it away or just put it someplace? I don't know. I don't even want to have to deal with it. Now that was embarrassing for me because I'm an adult. Why couldn't I just go in and gather up the material? Because I knew I couldn't, I had to be radical. I could not see that stuff. And so, it was embarrassing for me, but I asked one of the other guys. I guess I wasn't really fair to him, but I knew for me, I couldn't do that on my own. 
Radical purity often makes us appear weird, uncomfortable. I like to, I try to go on regular retreats where I just go off by myself, find some cheap housing, and just spend some time reading my Bible, spending some time in prayer, and just time uh, with the Lord to kind of get my bucket full again. And one of the places that I have historically gone was a B&B that had a TV in the room, but it had uninhibited cable. Whenever I'd set up my appointment, I said, I'm like these days, but I need to have the TV removed from the room. I just didn't want to have access to it. And each and every one of us, if we're really going to take serious what Jesus is saying here, hey, it's better to cut off your right hand than have your right hand cause you to sin. It's better to pluck out your right eye. And by the way, I think the reason why he says the right hand and the right eye, most likely he's saying your best one. Meaning, if you go to the eye doctor, oftentimes you're going to have one eye that's stronger than the other. If Take out your best one. If you're right-handed, your right arm's probably stronger than your left. It'd be better to cut off your best hand than it would be to let that hand cause you to sin. Jesus is saying, radically deal with this. Our purity calls for radical action. Now that may look different in your home than it might in mine. Radical purity may mean in your home of signing up for a, a internet service like um, co- like Covenant Eyes, where every site that you visit, either on your computer and now it's equipped for phone, is reported to a third party that you choose. Radical purity may mean not even having a smartphone if it means that that smartphone is going to cause you to sin with your eyes. Radical purity may even mean not having internet at home if that is a source that's causing people in your household to stumble. Radical purity may mean mom and dad saying no computer in your room. No television in your room. We're only going to have a computer and a TV in a public place in this household. Radical purity meant when my wife and I went to Spain, we specifically did not go to the coast because we researched and realized that European standards, the beaches would not be a place where I should be. You see, radical purity calls us to maybe sometimes do things that may make us feel awkward in a culture around us that doesn't care about purity at all. But Jesus is saying this is serious. That that the person who is a kingdom person, a believer in Jesus, Jesus' follower, his disciple, that should be seen in our lives. And not just as a checklist of I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, but righteousness on the inside, in the heart, in the mind. And we find Jesus calls his disciples to radical purity 
not only in every area of life, but also specifically in the fight against lust. You know, one of the reasons why Jesus is going through these six examples is to show that being right with God isn't just external, it has to be internal. And the more we really understand what Jesus is saying, we all realize that we're guilty on the inside before him. We all have sin in our hearts. And as Matthew unfolds, we're going to see that Jesus goes to such extent to help us with our sin problem because we can't fix that on our own. We don't have a righteousness. He he sees that and he goes to such an extent that he dies to pay the penalty for our sin. And then when we put our trust in him, he declares us to be righteous people. That's the only way we can enter the kingdom. That's the only way we can be right with God. Here, Jesus is talking to two groups of people. He's talking to disciples saying, if you're right with me, if you're my disciple, this is what your life needs to look like. You you need to take sin seriously. You need to call it for what it is. It's called a radical purity. And he's also talking to those who think they're good with God and they're not. They think they're good with God because of an external checklist. I think I've done more good in my life than bad. And Jesus is saying, no, you haven't. Because sin is not just externals. Sin's in the heart. And if you're here today and if you don't know if you are right with God or not, I would encourage you after the service just to stop back in our prayer room. We've got some material that we can give to you that will show you. And you can take out your own Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you're right with God through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're here today and you're just burdened today. I encourage you to stop back in our prayer room and spend some time in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for these glimpses of righteousness. We thank you for the forgiveness that we find in Jesus, that even as believers, when we see we fail in these areas, that we can come to you and experience you as a God of grace who forgives us when we confess our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.